Uh, The dictionary definition of the word contentious, it says this. uh, It's an adjective, and it says causing or likely to cause an argument or controversy. Um, Second one is... uh, Involving a heated argument. And the third definition is said, a a person given to arguing or provoking argument. Um, In Google, you can kind of, you know, have these different options of of asking questions. And the one question is, who is a contentious person? And they answer it for you. Thank you, Google. Uh, A contentious issue is one that people are likely to argue about. And a contentious person is someone who likes to argue or fight. Some issues are very controversial. They're also contentious because people tend to argue about them and the arguments will probably go on forever. You know what uh, contentious is. Uh, some synonyms for that, uh, some words like, uh, like belligerent, uh, pugnacious. And uh, any parent knows that uh, attitude that when you say, it's this way, you get that response like, no, it's not. It's that way. And, uh, and we see that um, all the time. And this morning, what I want to say is that there is a, uh, a climate of contention surrounding our Savior, surrounding the person of Jesus Christ. We want to recognize it, see it, recognize it, and, and kill that, uh, that climate of contentiousness. We are in uh, week number five of a series. Uh, we're looking through the Gospel of Mark, going straight through it. Uh, after five weeks, we've made it up to chapter three. Um, this morning, we are going to get through an entire chapter, a long passage um, that shows this contentious climate surrounded Jesus when he was first here um, in his earthly ministry. And so uh, let me read. Uh, we're going to start off with the first six verses. It's going to be a little bit of a review. And then we'll, uh, we'll catch up from there. So it says this in, in Mark chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So this is uh, the second time we see Jesus in a synagogue. Uh, It's the same synagogue, actually. He goes back to the place where um, his public ministry kind of kicked off just over a chapter, about a chapter and a half ago. Um, But ever since that point in time, when when he stepped up in that synagogue to teach, this, this undeniable power of the Lord Jesus Christ has been on full display and, uh, and the last chapter and a half that we've looked through has been this like one continuous highlight reel that's just been showcasing time and time again how Jesus is sovereign over, not subject to whatever authority he bumps into, whatever he encounters. And Jesus steps into each and every arena as the full and the final authority. And so he's demonstrated his sovereignty over over spiritual beings, over sickness, over scripture, and he even showed the authority that he has to forgive sin. Uh, The the one and only thing that he is subject to is is his father's will. 
And, and when we left off, this last audacious claim we saw him make was that he said, he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that, that even this, this Sabbath, this, this precious tradition and the laws that God's people had ordered their entire lives around, he's saying they're, they're subject to me as well. And so to sum up what we've seen so far, uh, the authority issue has already been settled. It is not up for grabs. It's not in question. The only question is, have we come to terms with that? That, that it's not you, it's, it's not me, it's not them, it's, it's him, it's Jesus. And, and, and it was a struggle back then for those who encountered him to come to terms with that reality. There was a lot of contention about that. And, and it's something that continues to be a struggle for people today, contending against this reality that Jesus is the highest power. Uh, you know, we live in a world today where we, we celebrate autonomy and, and independence. And, and, and we hear every day these messages that you are in charge, that you can do whatever you want to do. And don't let anyone tell you how to live or what to do. And yet we're reminded again that the extent of Jesus' authority hasn't diminished at, one, at all over the last 2,000 years. He is as much in charge today as he ever was, and and his invitation to us hasn't changed either. He's still calling people, follow me. That's his invitation. That's that's really the way that we know that we've settled this issue, that we've come to terms with who he is when, when we've realigned our lives around him, where Jesus is up front and we're following his lead. That's when we know there's no contention, but there's, there's surrender. And, and so follow me, um, it doesn't mean fit Jesus in. Uh, that's not what it's about, fitting Jesus into our boxes or our, our expectations or what we want him to be. Uh, who he is and, and what he's doing is it's like a whole new category. It, it blows up our categories. Jesus said it this way, new wine needs new wineskins. If you try to pour the new into the old, it's going to burst and blow up. And, and that means we've got to leave our expectations uh, at the door as we seek to follow him and, and, and align our lives around him. And it's a struggle. It, it was a struggle back then. Uh, it's a struggle today. And this passage is one more example of that struggle um, happening so, so this is like a showdown. There is a showdown happening in the synagogue, and there's a man there. He's got a withered hand. And, you know, I just kind of had to stop at that when I read that description. Why did they choose that word choice? I've never heard anyone's body parts being described as withered. You know, you could talk about a hand being paralyzed, maybe, or, or the hand was fractured, but it's, it's, it's withered. That's, that's a word that I kind of equate with, you know, like a branch of a tree that's dried up. It's died because the, the flow of water and of life and of nutrients has, has dried out. It hasn't, it's no longer reaching there. And I think in this case, that, that flow of life is dried up as well. And, and maybe, maybe that's an illustration that, that helps us understand what the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring is all about. That, that that's his, this is the mark of his ministry, that it's a restoring ministry that brings life and turns that flow back on to those dead and those dried up places. So uh, 
So Jesus here, he steps into the spotlight once again, and he showcases one more time this incomparable authority. And, and so the question at hand, uh, quite literally at hand, is this, is, is Jesus allowed to heal on the holy day, on the Sabbath? Does he have permission to do something like that? That's the question. And according to the religious leaders of the day, the answer was no. They had determined, they reached the conclusion that that went against the laws of God. You do not heal on the holy day. And Jesus, effectively what he does here, he just simply, he overrides their decision, uh, plain and simple, and he goes ahead and he heals this man. And so in the wake of that, in the wake of that incident, we see these two very polarized responses that start to emerge concerning him. Uh, the religious authorities see Jesus and they say, this guy is a nuisance, he's a threat, he needs to go. Let's get this guy out as soon as possible, no matter what the cost. And it's hard to miss that uh, there's an irony there in this passage because they end up breaking the same law that they're accusing him of breaking as they rush off and they work, as they make plans to take Jesus out on on the Sabbath. Um, and and we, get this, we get this glimpse of Jesus' emotional reaction here as well, which is kind of cool. It says that he responded to what they were doing with this combination of both anger and grief. You know, that's a, that's a response that probably every parent can relate to. Have you ever felt a combination of anger and grief at your children, at a, at a child's defiance? There's at least usually some kind of tinge of frustration. You know, I can't believe my child is doing that. Look at this attitude, this contentiousness, right? But that's not the only emotion. You add to that, there's also this, uh, this grief, because this is someone that you love. This is someone you care for. This is someone you want the best for. And, and you can't help but notice that they're shut down. They've shut their hearts down to you. And that means that, that, that they're going to have to learn something the hard way. There's going to be pain. And it causes grief. Jesus grieves hardness of heart. You know, he's not grieving. It's worth noting out, he's not grieving their legalism, even though it's there in spades. He's grieving that despite having had front row seats to this, to, to, to witness his healing authority, to seeing miracles firsthand, instead of responding to that and saying, you know what? We're seeing something unprecedented here. This this is amazing. We need to go back to the drawing board. We need to reconsider some of our assumptions because this is something. Uh, they don't do that. Instead, they, they dig their heels into the ground and they have this stubborn response is, this guy has got to go. This guy has got to get out of the picture. That's, that's hardness of heart and that's what Jesus grieves. And, and it's something we all have to be aware of keeping our hearts from growing hard because Jesus has no problem healing a withered hand, but he doesn't have any remedy. There's no healing for a hardened heart. Uh, hardened heart is when you have already arrived at a predetermined conclusion about someone, in this case about Jesus, and that he is something other than, than who he claims to be, who he's revealed himself to be. And that means it doesn't matter what happens. 
No amount of evidence is ever going to change your mind. Now, Jesus isn't threatened by hardened hearts, but it's worth noting that he grieves them. Uh, We're going to see a whole lot more of that in just a few verses, so hang on to that thought. Um, That is the one side of the contentiousness of that reaction. There's an opposite response as well, and let's read about that next. Um, Here's what it says. It says, uh, he withdrew, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. All right, so, so here on the opposite side of the stubborn hearts, this resistance, uh, we see these crowds of people who are coming flooding in from all over the place to get to Jesus. And, and it's not just limited to the, to the places within Israel, the places like Judea and Jerusalem. They're, they're pouring in from all over, from places like Edomia, from, from beyond the Jordan, from Gentile regions. That's the point, from beyond just the, just, just the people of Israel. And, and so this very low-key fishing town of Capernaum is just completely overrun all kinds of people set on one thing. Let's do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. Now, now they're searching for that someone who can do what no one else could do, who can give what they can't get from anywhere else. Uh, healing from diseases and sicknesses and torments. And, and, and we're not quite sure at this point, what's their motives? What's driving that? The jury is still out on that one. The question is this, are they genuinely interested in who he is, or do they just want to take what they can get from this wonder worker and then move on with their lives? You know, the fact that Jesus actually has to take some precautions to keep from getting crushed by the crowds, that that may give us a clue. Uh, But we're going to wait on that one. It'll come back in a couple of weeks, and we'll see how it plays out. Uh, But either way, the the, the situation is escalating on both ends. There's this religious resistance that's mounting on the one side, and, and the crowds are pressing in on the other side. And so the question before Jesus is, what are you going to do? Where do you go from here? What's next? Let's, let's read and see uh, what his next move is. It says this, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 of whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonagerees, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I'll stop right there. Jesus Next move is to call to himself those he desired. His, his next move is not to cater to the crowds, even though they're coming from everywhere. It's not to even to, to counter his adversaries. Jesus continues 
with his father's agenda. He continues to to carry out his father's purposes by calling this company of 12 men to follow him. Not not just to get something from him, but, but to be with him in a unique and a relational kind of way. So if you can think of it like a a master-apprentice sort of relationship or maybe like a teacher-student kind of thing, it's something like that. It's the invitation that says is is to be with him, to do life together with him, to watch, to, to listen, to learn, and to follow his lead, and even to take part in this kingdom work that he's he's about and that he's doing. Uh, and, and, and Jesus continues to extend that invitation, that call to people today. It's, a, it's an invitation that, that many of us here in this room can say, yeah, I've, I've responded to that, uh, following Jesus. Uh, it's, it's a whole lot more. It goes far beyond just, you know, checking off the box of attending a religious service. It's, it's not about just uh, doing religious stuff, it's not trying to, to just be a good person. It's, it's about Jesus in the front. It's about seeing what he sees, learning what he's teaching, understanding what matters to him, seeing what breaks his heart, and, and following, following him. It's, it's a revolutionary call, and this is the place where it all started. It started with these 12, these these 12. It says he, he appointed them. He appointed the 12. And, and in Greek, that word appointed, it's actually like a construction word. It's what you would use to, to, to describe constructing a building or, or creating something brand new. And, and the idea is that he is building something brand new, this, this new community of followers that was starting right there with them, the ones who who lived with Jesus, who learned from Jesus, who, who knew what he was about like no one else did. And, and what they've learned, uh, it's been written down, it's been handed down to us in the form of this book, in the form of the, the New Testament, what, what was called the Apostles' Teaching. Uh, it's not speculation, it's, it's revelation, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it's written down by, by those who... We're rubbing shoulders up front and close and personal, credible witnesses who are living alongside Jesus. And this is the place we turn to, to, to meet Jesus, to encounter him, to learn what it looks like to do life with him at the lead. And, and, and it's worth noting that the scope of what Jesus is actually setting in motion here, uh, it's a lot bigger and it's a lot more scandalous than, than it seems it's easy for us to miss it, but Jesus is here, and the way he's doing what he's doing is very intentional. He's on a mountain, he's calling 12, and this is echoing back to a lot of the Old Testament themes of when the, 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 the people of Israel were formed. There was a mountain involved there, and there were 12 tribes, and, and Jesus is, is, is getting at something here that's scandalous, he's, that this is, this is the new nation of God's people. This is the new people of God. He's, he's making this revolutionary statement that this is now the place where God's presence and power and blessing are found. It's, it's around me, Jesus says. And, 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 and that statement, that reality, it wasn't lost on those who were around him, those who were listening. The question is, how do you think they responded? Uh, let's, let's keep reading. And we'll see. 
It says this, uh, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they couldn't even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother, my brother and my sister and my mother. All right. So, uh, so this is the place where the contention uh, kicks into high gear, right? There's, there's two very different forms of resistance that come to the forefront. The first one is, is family, um, that, that one gets introduced, but then it doesn't get resolved until the end. And then in the middle, in between that, there's this, uh, this campaign of misinformation that comes from the mouths of Jesus' primary adversaries, the, the religious leaders. Both examples give us some incredible insights into who Jesus is, what it means to follow him, and how much is at stake. So we're going to start with the scribes. And Jesus gives this very stark warning. He warns them that they're closing in on committing this, this unpardonable sin. Now, as a pastor, having counseled many people over the years, I know that that is a very scary verse. Um, it's perfect for a day like today. It's Halloween. Uh, so we're going to jump into it and see what it's all about. Start out, what I want to say is that uh, what we're seeing here. This is the progression of what we've already seen. This is that hardness of heart that was already showcased in the synagogue, and it's just amping up. It's just increasing and increasing, and it's a warning that at a certain point, clay turns into rock. At a certain point, hardness becomes hardened. And so so this has a whole lot less to do with being unable to be forgiven it has a whole lot more to do with reaching a point where someone stops even caring about it. Okay, so in this case, the Pharisees were operating from this predetermined conclusion that Jesus, the redeeming Lamb of God, the only one in whom forgiveness can be found, they say this guy has to be taken out. They say he's demonically inspired. And and, and in their minds... That was settled. That was not up for debate. It was already resolved. And so their goal at this point was to see one day uh, the front newspaper headlines run with this message, Jesus is gone. That was their motivation. The only issue at this point was how do we build a narrative that can help that headline run? 
And so as the, as the George Michael song says, it's all we have to do now is take these lies and make them true somehow. And that's what they're doing. So they literally demonize the Son of God. Um, truth be told, it's not a whole lot different from how some of you guys react and your attitudes and your orientations when the president that you didn't vote for is sitting in the Oval Office, right? You demonize him. It's already settled. This guy is no good. This guy is corrupt to the core. Now, what that means then is that no matter what he does, even if it appears to be good, you can rest assured it's not. It can't be because according to the reality you've constructed, it's not possible, right? And there's always, always some kind of explanation you can come up with to justify that predetermined conclusion. And if you're struggling to do that, all you got to do is turn on your preferred flavor of network cable news, and there will be hosts of personalities who are at work around the clock to make sure you reach that conclusion. Welcome to our world. The Pharisees, see, they couldn't argue about what Jesus did, right? He cast out demons. He healed people. And this is, this is all they got. Well, sure, he cast them out, but, you know, that sounds like a good thing. But what you need to understand, here's the narrative we need to spread out there, is that he did that by the power of Satan. That'll work, right? You see, there's, there's no scenario in which anything Jesus does can possibly be seen for what it is. That's how tainted their view is. And the idea is that that's not the place you want to be, not with politicians, but definitely not when it comes to Jesus. So if you've been around here over the past five weeks, you have heard me beating this one drum. This is the, this is the drum that I've been beating, that this question, who is Jesus? That is the most important question any of us will ever answer. That's the question that the gospel of Mark that we're looking through was written to answer. And, and, and it matters. It matters that much. And I believe with all my heart that there are eternal ramifications attached to the way we answer that question. And the answer is staring the Pharisees square in the face. It's right there in front of them. And they respond with outright defiance. It's not like they didn't have enough evidence. They're suppressing that. They're saying that Satan is the one who's responsible for Jesus' work. That's like getting the worst possible answer to the most critical question, right? So does that mean that they've passed the point of no return? Does it mean that God is no longer willing to forgive them? I, I don't think that's what this is talking about. But I think maybe it just means that they're, they're getting closer to passing that point of, of being able to see clearly because their perspective is that tainted. That's, that's how distorted their perspective was getting. That's, that's the slippery slope of the hardened heart. And that's what this is about. So, so, so what I would say is let's, let's work hard to keep our hearts open. And if you are one who has a a sensitive spirit like the many that I've talked to over the years. And, you know, they, they pointed this verse and pastor, I'm really concerned that, that maybe, I've, maybe I've committed that unforgivable sin. I, I can tell you 
that the fact that you're concerned about it is an indication that you're not there. So rest assured on that. Um, so, okay, so with that kind of resolved and settled a little bit, let's, let's not overlook the way that Jesus counters this contention. He, he says this, Satan isn't undermining his own kingdom. Come on, this is, this is not like there's some kind of demonic civil war going on. And so he says, all right, let's put it in story form. Maybe this will help you guys. And so he says this, imagine the house of a strong man. So, so imagine the Arnold Schwarzenegger residence is getting ransacked, right? People are running off with his stuff down the street. Would your first thought to be, hey, what is crazy Arnold up to now? No, of course not. The only way a scenario like that would happen is if someone who was stronger than Arnold broke into his house, pounded him to a pulp, tied him up, Only after that would someone be able to take off with Arnold's stuff. And so Jesus is kind of making this point. He says, the part of Arnold is played by Satan. He's the strong man. But get this, I'm I'm the stronger man. (laughs) I'm the one who's stronger than him, who tied him up. I'm not in cahoots with the devil. I've bound him, and I'm taking his kingdom right out from under him. Do you get that? See, once again, Jesus is here. He's saying, I am the highest authority. I am large and in charge. And on a day like today, in particular, uh, you know, this Halloween uh, day, uh, that on the one side is like this harmless pursuit of candy and costumes, right? And, and it's harmless unless you ask your dentist. Uh, he may have a different take about that. Um, but there's also... Uh, this is a day when there's a lot of celebration of darkness and death and, 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 and demonic things and this whole spiritual realm that's, that's, that's real. Uh, make no mistake, it is real. And, and, and these are bigger and stronger than you and I. That strong man is not someone you and I are going to beat up. Um, and there are too many uh, who turn there looking for power but end up in bondage. And, and so let this story, let this sink in deep. Jesus, Jesus is the highest authority. He, he has the devil on a leash and he's ransacked his kingdom. So choose your team wisely. So that's the one side of the, the contention. There's, there's a second side of the contention, this other surprising resistance that comes from, from his family. Right? That one kind of came out of left field. They, they heard what Jesus was saying. They heard all this talk about this new community, this replacing the existing ones. They saw what was happening, and they jump in to do a family intervention. How pleasant. They, they run in and try to reel Jesus in. It says they went in with the intention of seizing him. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to contain him. They wanted to take him captive because it says at this point, they've come to the conclusion that he's out of his mind. He's just gone too far. We don't know what's gotten into him. He's thinking he's starting some kind of new movement. He's just, he's just way out there and we need, we need to reel him back in. You know, their tactics, they're very different from the religious leader's tactics But make no mistake, in the end, the results are very much the same. The Pharisees try to demonize Jesus. His family tries to domesticate him. 
Neither one works. They try unsuccessfully to control Jesus, to reduce him, to make him more respectable and a little bit less over the top, and Jesus will have none of it. You know, that attitude is still around as well. There are attempts made on a continual basis all the time to try to soften out the sharp edges of what Jesus says, who he claims to be. Let's reduce Jesus to nothing more than a moral teacher. He came up with a few fortune cookie type of worthy sayings. That's about it. He's safe. He's harmless. You know, in our day and age, what are those things that we are tempted to try to rip away from him to make him go down easier, to try to tame him? Jesus will not be domesticated. And by the end of the chapter, they've, they've, they finally got word to him. Hey, your family is here. Jesus, they're looking for you. And here's how Jesus responds. He says, who, who, who are my family? Who, who's my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my brother and my mother and my sister. He, he actually redefines family to something that goes way beyond just the blood bond. This, this new movement of followers that he's starting up, it's, it's so strong, it's so deep that it builds and forms this family connection, this family of faith. It's a, it's a bond that's, that's stronger than all those things that divide people and separate. A family that's made up of different nations, of different tribes, of different languages, a family where the young and the old and the rich and the poor can sit around the same table in communion. It's a table where, and a family where the color of your skin or the brand of your clothes, they don't cause separation. They cause appreciation. That's, that's the family of Christ followers. But, but make, make no mistake, it's not the domesticated Jesus. It's, it's the untamed Jesus. And, and, and this place, this community here, we're, we're connected to that family. We're a part of that family. We're an expression of that. We're, we're connected together to carry out his will, to see his purposes done, and to be a people who are supportive of each other, who are there for each other, who we can turn to and lean on and feel a closeness with. And, and, and this, is a, this is the family that Jesus gave his life to form to bring together. He went to the cross, uh, not just for certain people, not just for people like you and like me, just he went for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And we're a part of that. And so here's the ongoing challenge. Jesus has made some bold, audacious claims that we have to come to terms with. Who he is, what he said, and there's a very natural outworking of that, which is just a response of contentiousness. No, you're not. No, you don't. No, I don't have to. And so there's this opportunity on a daily basis to recognize that contentiousness and, and kill it. Because he is who he said he is. He is greater and he is doing great things. And we don't want to reduce him to less than he is. We don't want to reject him and try to take him out, the goal is to receive him and to follow him and to line our lives up with him as the lead 
and with us following where he's going. Let's pray together. Lord,